Welcome to the Westside Gathering Podcast, and thanks for making the time to learn and grow with us. Here, you'll find teaching from our live Sunday gatherings. After the message, we'll say a little more about our church and how you can connect. But for now, let's jump right in. When we think about Thanksgiving, it's, some, it's, it's one of those holidays that should overflow from what's, what we can see in, in our lives, even in pockets, not always in perfection, uh, and overflow to others. That's often that kind of idea. And that's kind of the heartbeat of what I'm thinking about today is we, we want to bring a close to this series we've been in called Established by Love. And uh, so I want to start off with a story, though. I've been reading uh, Andre Agassi's uh, autobiography, and um, apparently it's one of the, the better biographies around. And I'm, I'm, like, not great at reading novels or non- or, or fiction books. Like, I'm, I, you know, I can, like, track with an info book more, and sometimes, like, stories. So his story is pretty captivating. And so if you don't know who Andre Agassi is, he's, he's like professional tennis player, now retired, had an incredible career. And uh, as, as his career started, uh, he, you know, kind of like was groomed under the rigid, crazy um, taskmaster style of his dad. And it was a really tough uh, season as a child and as a teenager. And, but out of that, even though he expresses so often in his autobiography that he hates tennis, he's really good at it. And that's the only thing he does. And there's a moment where he's obviously doing well. He's on the circuit. He's playing Wimbledon. He's playing the U.S. Open. He's winning. He's losing. But he's never kind of reaching where he wants to reach. And he changes, he changes everything. He changes his coach. He changes his, um, his manager. And he changes his trainer. And his trainer's name is Joe Rees. He's just a beast of a man. Like, it's just kind of crazy. I think if you see the picture, you'll catch that. But uh, uh, in, in, his, in this moment, when he changes manager, coach, coach, and trainer, he gets Jill, the guy in the sunglasses on the left. And uh, there's other pictures of him. You can just kind of see how big he is, and you can find that out online if you're really interested. But when you read his story, you can't help that when he meets Jill. Jill becomes like this river of fresh water in Agassiz's life. Uh, because one of the things, not just because of his skill, but he says, Jill didn't treat me like a taskmaster. But Jill was committed to me. He genuinely cared for me. And he brought like a training to my sport that I didn't have for all my life. And so it's a mix of love, commitment, and genuine care. But it completely changed Agassiz's life. Like Jill's presence in Agassiz's life completely changed. In fact, I use the word fresh water because Jill actually created like a liquid for Agassiz to drink in his training, and he calls it Jill water. Like before he's going to play, uh, a day before, he's like, get me my Jill water, I need my Jill water, because Jill created this formula that just kind of worked uh, for Agassiz. And so when I think about that and put that together, Jill's influence spread into every pocket of Agassiz's body through his water and his training and his game. And it, and it reminds me of what happens when people truly get rooted in love. We don't get better at tennis. I'm sorry about that if that's like your goal. Um, but it's that when there's an influence that is so big and, 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 and powerful, it affects part, every part of our life. And uh, now we're talking about something way bigger than Jill Rees and way bigger than tennis. We're talking about the love of God established in Jesus Christ and when, when people come to follow Christ and trust Christ, the scriptures tell us that we're rooted in the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ. And when that happens, love, that love begins to spread into our life and into every facet of our lives. Kind of like fresh, a fresh water system into a body of water. But 
A fresh water system of love into our lives moves us from theory to practice, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from thoughts and prayers to everyday behavior. And there's this prayer that the Apostle Paul has for the Ephesian church. And, and if you've been tracking with us for this whole series, you know that we've been taking clues, finding love clues in, in Paul's letters, uh, in Paul's letter to the Ephesians particularly. And, uh, and so we've been tracking. And here's this one prayer. Uh, and, and it's part of the prayer where we read about being rooted and established in love. But Paul prays this specifically at the end of, the, of his prayer. Verse 20, he says, Now to him who is who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than we all can ask or imagine. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And Paul prays this this part of his prayer. And I love his prayer. He's saying, God, would you do abundantly more than anything we can ask or imagine? And I think, well, what is that more like, what does that mean? Is it, is it more money? Is it more success? Is it more, uh, you know, better skills in my life? Like, what's the more he's talking about? And as you, you walk through Ephesians, you know that part of the, the big piece of this is that the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of God's kingdom has transformed people's lives in love, experiencing God's love and that love going horizontal where the hostility that's between us and God and often hostility between people, we read that in chapter 2, is broken by Christ. And that God could do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine is what imagine when that truly happens in all its fullness. And I think part of that more, part of that abundantly more, are all the clues of love in this letter as well. Love spreading to every relationship, every part of our lives. And there's a little sign of this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, where Paul says something that is very countercultural in his day. Verse 21, he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, he starts this chapter, chapter 5, to tell, calling us to live in love, be imitators of God as God's beloved children, live in love as Christ loved us. And if you track with chapter 5, he moves to talk about this behavior that's opposite of God's kingdom, that we would get out of this behavior that is opposite of God's kingdom, that is opposite of the love we're rooted in, because now in Christ, we're called to live as children of light. And then Paul shifts right in the middle of chapter 5. He shifts with this phrase in, in verse 21 before he talks about three examples of relationships. And in verse 21, he says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, maybe one of your versions says submit to one another or mutually submit to one another. And this, I think, is a sign of a life that is transformed by the gospel and a life that is rooted in the love of God expressed in Christ. This idea of mutual submission. And it's counter-cultural because it's not something that, like, it's interesting. Like, Paul doesn't just say love one another, which is pretty big. Um, Paul says be subject to one another, mutually submit to one another. This was unheard of in the first century Greek and Roman culture. And even if it was heard of in little pockets, it wasn't lived widely it's this idea where in, in a culture that, that, that you know, kind of worshipped hierarchy and specific defined roles and statuses between the elite and the non-elite and various classes within a neighborhood, within a region that were very much the norm, 
Paul inserts this idea of being subject to each other, submitting to one another, mutually submitting to one another. And if that's true, it affects all these relationships in a culture. Now, imagine people became Christians in this context. People that that discovered the gospel of God's kingdom, the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ, they found new identity in the love of their Father, Heavenly Father. They found a new equality at the foot of the cross. They found a new confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit. They found new love, true love, vertically with God their Father and then influencing them horizontally with others. And and I believe that they find this new idea, this mutual submission to one another, and it's unlike the surrounding culture. Now, inside the church, if you were in the church of Ephesus in the first century, probably only be about 30 people or so, not a lot. But in those 30 people, there'd be a variety of classes, a variety of statuses, a variety of, obviously, gender, ethnicities, uh, wealth, and, and poverty, and all that. Outside of this church community, mutual submission didn't exist. Inside this church community, mutual submission was something they were being called towards. They were being called towards. And it was a sign of living in love. More than just a sign of love, it was tied to worship. Mutually submit to one another or be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, because, Paul is saying, because you worship Jesus, because you call Jesus Lord, because he leads your life, because you're now in God's kingdom, mutually submit to one another or be subject to one another. And then Paul applies this to, like, to regular relationships. And he, he's not exhaustive. He, just, he, he applies it to, about, to three, not about, to three uh, relationships. And I'm just going to read it. So from verse 21, we're going to read on. I'm, I'm not going to unpack uh, every phrase here because it's just too much. And I want to get to the heart of this, this idea of what love does, how love disrupts and spreads. So verse 21, and then we'll continue, and we'll, we'll just read into these relationships a little bit. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, and the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. So as to be present, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's a great, this is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. We're going to continue, but one of this, you know, I'll let you guys figure this out, but sometimes we, we can read this as Paul giving us an example in marriage for how the church works with Christ, or sometimes we can read this as an example of how the church works for what this means for marriage. I'll let you guys figure that out at home, okay? But, because um, uh, I'm not going to get into that today, but, but let, let's continue with these different examples. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, 
This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and you may live long on earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then the last relationship. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling and singleness of heart as you obey Christ. Not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not to men and women, knowing that whatever we do, good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we are slaves or free. And his masters do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that both of you have the same master in heaven, and with him there's no partiality. Here's Paul speaking to these household codes, to these various relationships. And in the new family of Jesus... To the church he's speaking, to this small pocket of people in a large town like Ephesus and in a larger pocket like the Roman Empire, Paul is saying, hey, now that you're in the new family of Jesus, now that you've experienced who Jesus is and you're rooted in his love, this means that how you respond at home and how you respond in the neighborhood and how you respond in the workplace uh, becomes different. Now, he walks through these three relationships, and we don't have time to get into all of them, and there's going to be tons of questions maybe left hanging on the table, uh, you know, just by reading this. But he, he just, he speaks, you know, to women and men, children and parents and slaves and masters. And, and often in that culture, the women, children and slaves were, were, were seen as inferior. Women were seen as inferior, secondary rights often in that culture. Kids had very little rights in that culture. Slaves didn't, didn't always look like uh, we, what we understand slavery today. Sometimes it was like we understand slavery today. Sometimes it was like uh, an employee relationship. But what we do understand is that they were, if, if a slave was owned, their obligation was to their master. And it, it was not... Paul's not trying to get into something here where he's trying to change his society in that moment, and I'll get that to a moment, but I believe the New Testament starts a path to challenge some of these held beliefs that we can read into that culture at the time. But Paul's aim here, I don't think, at the moment, is to redesign the systems of his society. 30 people, maybe, in a, in a whole city, and the Roman Empire... He's, I don't think he's aiming at that moment to redesign the systems of his society, but to show them how love changes how one relates to people within that system. Because they were stuck in that system. They were part of that system. They were part of how the world worked. Not everything in this passage shows negativity, but some things do. And Paul's goal at this moment wasn't political. Paul's goal at this moment, and here's the one thing I want to tease out of this, he's saying, how do you follow Jesus when you go back to work tomorrow? How do you love the people in your life, regardless of where they are, regardless of where you are relationally or positionally with them? How do you love them when you go back home? How do you love them when you're with your siblings or your parents or your husband or your wife or your master or your slave or your employee or employer? And what I think at the heart of this is, without getting into too many details, is that love disrupts, love disrupts how they interact with the system. Love disrupts how they interact with the system. And when Paul says, be subject to one another, to these group of people who are going to leave that house church and go on into the different pockets of society, mutual submission disrupts the way they respond and react and live in that system. Because love would spread into every single relationship they have, and it would change the dynamic. It would change the dynamic. And as Paul gives these examples, first with wives and husbands, 
Think about the husbands for a second. The husbands could leverage their culture support of their leadership in the home as a way to abuse, to gain their own ambition, to be pleased. But love challenges that, their relationship in that moment. Love sacrificially like Jesus. Remember your call to oneness with your wife. Remember you're in this together. Remember you've left your families to be one with each other. In, that Jewish, in a Jewish culture where some would have come out of, uh, men wouldn't have gone near their wives during their monthly cycle. And yet, yet, Paul is talking about a sense of what happens when we see each other, when we, we bring purity and joy and, and a sense of value and worth. And that's, a, that's love disrupting what a culture maybe would have leaned a husband to think, even Jewish culture, with which, which the gospel ended up also challenging. That's an example of disruption. Of course, if we think about kids and parents. Parents could leverage their culture's support of authority, and authority is not always bad, but let's say when authority gets authoritarian, could, could leverage their culture's support of authority over their kids to coerce behavior, to coerce conformity, but now they're challenged by love. Love disrupts that. Don't provoke your kids, Paul tells dads. Don't provoke your kids. This can be equally to moms. While you naturally guide them and teach them, don't provoke them. That's not the way. Instruct them in the Lord, which would include instructing them in the way of love, right? If we're rooted and established in love. But don't provoke. Look at his example with slaves and masters. Slavery in this era wasn't the same everywhere. And we can't read what we understand of, of, all, of slavery um, onto every situation in the first century. But, and not every master abused their slaves, or not every master was bad to their employee if it was that kind of relationship, but there was a lot of abuse. And masters could have leveraged their culture support of their role and take advantage of their employees and slaves. And love would disrupt that. Love would disrupt the master at that point, where calls the master who, who maybe becomes a Christian at that time and now is in this situation is like, hey, Jesus is your master. How does Jesus lead you? How does Jesus challenge you? How does Jesus call you? View your employees with dignity. Treat them with respect. Don't threaten. And that maybe seems like the only answer. And even in our culture today, if you think of an employee and employer, an employer might say, the only way I can get people to do stuff is if I threaten them with like, I don't know, a pay cut or worse environment or something. And it's like, how else will I get them to work? And the big disruption here is, no, don't. That, that's not the way of love. Remember, you serve Jesus, Paul's talking to these masters, the one who modeled leadership by serving, the one who accomplished God's will by dying. And all of a sudden, recognizing, oh, the master and the slave are equal at the cross. Love disrupts the system. And it, it, it also becomes, I would say, difficult for uh, how Paul speaks to wives, children, and, and slaves, too. And particularly, think about a slave looking at their master and saying, oh, at the foot of the cross, we're equal. But you're still my master. Right? And a, and a kid in, a, in, an, in an environment with their parents saying, well, yeah, you're my dad, you're my mom, but hey, at the cross, we're equal. How, do I, how, does, a, how does a child respond? I want you to, and, and even when you think about wives in this situation, wives submit to your husbands, and that's probably the least negative 
of, of all of them. And there's some, some good stuff in there where we just talk about uh, healthy leadership in a home. But I, I want you to consider this. Paul's not giving us an exhaustive list of examples. And he's also not equating each relationship. Notice how he uses a different word for each relationship. He uses submit in a marriage. He uses honor in a child-parent relationship. And he uses obey with slaves. Very different language. The context is different. The relationship is different. The atmosphere is different. But both parties in that system are challenged. Both parties are challenged in that system by love. And when culture uh, uh, gives space and room for the person in that relationship that maybe has more authority and they take advantage of that, Paul is saying love disrupts that. Love disrupts that. And what does that is his, his opening statement. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Jesus. This changes the dynamic. It changes the perspective we have of the people we're in relationship with, whether it's a marriage relationship, whether it's a, a sibling or family relationship, whether it's a work relationship, whether it's a neighborhood relationship. It changes the dynamic. It makes us realize that whatever, you know, whatever this relationship looks like, the person on the other side of this is sacred. The person on the other side of this is beloved by God. The person on the other side of this is, is equal at the foot of the cross. I like what Philip Yancey says when he prays for people. He writes this. He says, when I pray for another person, I am praying for God to open my eyes so that I can see that person as God does and then enter into the stream of love that God already directs towards that person. That's powerful. As we pray for people in our lives, as we pray for the relationships we're in, that's powerful. Now, again, as, as we think about this, I know we can, we can lean to, to looking at all the negative things and why can't we change all these things? And we should, these things, many of these things have changed over time. But I want you to just pause for a second and see that how, what happens when we're rooted in love, how that love disrupts and then that love spreads. And so without getting into all the granular stuff of this, I just want to ask this question. How is love spreading in your relationships? How is love spreading in how you deal with your, with your boss? How is love active in your life and how you're dealing with an employee? How is love uh, spreading into the different spheres of your life? Because love has a 360 degree impact on our relationships. What I mean by 360 degree, it's lateral, it's up, it's down. It means that all the relationships we're in, somehow, when Paul calls us to be mutually submissive to one another, out of reverence for Jesus, it means now any relationship we walk into, any relationship we walk into, love disrupts and love spreads into. How will, how will someone lead their staff this week differently? How will someone respond to a manager this week differently because of love? How will someone parent their child how will, someone, how will you interact with your spouse? How do you interact with a friend or neighbor that makes, is a completely different um, you know, financial status as you, maybe up or down? How do you interact with them? If you're in healthcare, how do you serve a patient as a nurse or a doctor when love disrupts your life and spreads into your life? How do you respond to a supervisor? How do you treat those you supervise? 
How do you truly see your marriage as oneness when Paul says, you've now become one? You're together. You're a unit. Love disrupts and love spreads. And I can't help but kind of coming back to this Agassiz metaphor where this trainer, Jill, his presence disrupts Agassiz's life. First, it disrupts him if you, in terms of his game and his, and his body and everything because Jill's presence first totally like disrupts him because he like works him hard and he does all kinds of different things uh, with him in training. And the kind of care, not a taskmaster, but a caregiver disrupts Agassiz as well because he was only used to his father being so hard on him and being so abusive of him and, and pushing him so hard. I mean, there were times when he would talk with his dad after a match and he would even win the match. And his dad said, you lost that second set so badly. And Agassiz's like, he's in tears inside because this father who pushed him all his life, even in a win, couldn't just like give him some tender, loving care. Now he meets this guy, Jill, who's a beast of a guy, but somehow is like a big teddy bear that just loves him. This guy disrupted his life physically and even emotionally. And I, and I know it's a strange metaphor to think about this, but it just, it's such a, a kind of like a fresh, fresh water into a pond type of me, uh, metaphor for me. And that's what happens when God's kingdom breaks into your life and my life. It's this fresh body of water that's the power and presence of God and the work of Jesus. First, it disrupts. First, it challenges us. Then it calls us into something new. And then it spreads into every aspect of our lives. Every relationship, every sphere. And so when Paul prays that God would do abundantly more than we can all or ask, uh, all we can ask or imagine, I believe that part of that prayer is that God's love would spread into every pocket and crevice of your life. That it would affect how you treat people and how you love people and how you see people. That a life rooted in the love of God expressed in Jesus would have the power to change every part of your life, every relationship, every resource you hold. In fact, everything you touch. Everything you touch. Now imagine the impact. Imagine the impact of that. If we, if we truly allowed the love of God expressed in Christ that we're rooted in to flood our lives and completely first disrupt us and then spread into every pocket of our lives. First of all, you and I, we would experience the kingdom of God in greater ways. We would experience the kingdom of God. Then we would express the kingdom of God, we would, or we would be an expression of God's kingdom everywhere we are. And you know what that would mean? This, this would turn into mission. We would express God's kingdom to everyone around us. We would experience it in greater ways, we would then become an expression of it in our relationships and decisions and finances. And then we would, be, we would express it to people around us. We would alert the world to God's kingdom. And people would begin to wonder and ask, how is it that you can, how is it that in this environment at work that you're in, how is it that you can, you can, you can respond to your boss in this way? I totally don't understand it. Then you start to describe how the love of God in Christ Jesus has spread through your life. How is it that you can have these employees and you're, 
you, you don't treat you, you treat them with respect and love and, and you see them as valuable and, and 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 you're not trying to get something out of them, but you give something to them and and so and then you have this opportunity to respond and say and talk about the love of God that's flooded through your life. What about maybe a friend or a neighbor that says, How how is it that when you're parenting your kids, you know, you like you have this tender way of instructing them and guiding them, but but somehow they still they still can know your love. How do you do that in love? And you can start to describe and express God's kingdom to them. This can happen in so many different pockets of our lives. And I, I'm kind of cautious to to share this as I close, but as it's Thanksgiving, like I'm thankful for how I've seen this in in my wife's life, because. I don't know, I don't know, this is crazy to, when I think about these different relationships my wife has had when she's at work um, and uh, she's often not, not, not been the boss and yet her supervisors after a while will like be reaching out to her for something and, uh, and find this respect for her and I'm like, how does that happen? Where in, the, in this, like I see my wife and I see kind of the 363 degree relationships she's in, like respect from supervisors, colleagues, and then sometimes interns that she's asked to work with. And I thought, there's something about how the kingdom of God, when it affects a life, spreads 360 degrees. It's not about if you're a boss or not. It's not about if you're an employee or not. It's not about, uh, you know, if you're a kid or a parent or a husband or a wife or you're a neighbor or a friend. It's, it's all-encompassing. And somehow, when, when we experience God's kingdom and his love and we become an expression of it and then we begin to express it, other people are alerted to that and say, well, how is this possible in your life? How can you, you live this way and react this way and respond this way? And so that's my prayer as we... We kind of close, and I know I've left so many questions on the table with a text that I chose today because it's a long text, and we're going to start asking questions about wives and husbands and about parenting and kids and about employment and, like, isn't, you know, isn't slavery bad? Yes, slavery is bad. It's wrong. It should never happen. Like, but I just, we just don't have time to get into all that stuff. That's like another series, okay? But at the heart of it, at the heart of it, what I notice here is how love has disrupted the system we're in. Because the system that we're in in this world doesn't understand mutual submission. Doesn't understand that we don't, we don't find our security in using people or find our security in positions or find our security in our possessions or accomplishments. The, the system of our world doesn't often understand that. And so when the kingdom of God floods, it, floods in, it disrupts everything. And they start asking questions. How can I be a boss with mutual submission? How can I work with this person when, you know, I mean, the way, sometimes the way they treat me, how can, I, how can I have mutual submission here? Somehow the love of God just disrupts this stuff. And of course, these things need to change along the way. And of course, we never want anyone to be, uh, you know, kind of like used as a, as a doormat in anything, in any way in life, in any relationship. But somehow... This is just this counter-cultural way, and I think it's only possible when people are rooted in the love of God expressed in Jesus Christ out of reverence for Jesus. So we're going to pray um, Ephesians 3 today, and it's not on the screen. I just want you to listen to it. 
And we're going to pray this. And as we get to that part, now to him who is able to, to do immeasurably more than we can all ask or imagine. I just I want you to think about the relationships you're in in your life. And then in, just invite God in. Lord, ask him. Lord, may your kingdom, may the power of your love, out of reverence for Jesus, come and disrupt. Because I want to experience your kingdom. I want to be an expression of your kingdom to the world around me. Here's this pray, prayer. I pray, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you, that he, sorry, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, as you are being rooted and grounded in love. And I pray that you may have the power to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Just pause. Bring your life to him in this moment. Ask him who can do immeasurably more than we can ever ask or imagine according to his power at work within us. To flood your life, to flood your relationships, to flood your decisions. God, we welcome you into the areas of our life where we need disruption, where we need challenge, where we need a wake-up call, where we need fresh, the fresh water of your spirit, the fresh water of your power, the fresh water of your love, the fresh water of the cross to disrupt us. We welcome your disruption. And then we pray for the spread of your kingdom in our lives into every crevice and pocket, into every relationship, into every resource we have. To you who can do immeasurably more than we ask or imagine according to your power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message helps guide you on your spiritual journey of discovering the life and message of Jesus. We update this podcast weekly, so why not hit subscribe and journey with us? Who are we? Westside Gathering is a local church in the West Island of Montreal. We're a simple community of faith where we want you to feel welcome, even if you're not into church or religion. We meet every Sunday, but you can also find smaller groups, environments, and resources for all ages between Sundays. Find out more at westsidegathering.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Vimeo. We'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, ask for help, or let us know how we can pray for you. If 
If you'd like to contribute financially, just go to westsidegathering.com forward slash giving. Until next time, peace.